This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. <laughs> well done. Here we are. It is, in fact, radiotherapy. Um, I'm Panel Beater and I'm joined in the studio by Training Wheels and... <laughs> I haven't been here for a while, eventually, so fair enough. Eventually the brain and the mouth will start to, it is Sunday to morning. get along yes, with each that's other. that's right. And it's so hot. Revolt, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And who's sleeping? No. Nah. I didn't sleep last no, night. Exactly. No, exactly. So you're forgiven. Um, great to have you guys. What have we yeah. got coming up? Well, we've got uh, a little bit of catch-up. Yep, we'll do some catch-up and you can talk about some healthy country stuff. Would you like me to start with that? Yeah, why don't we go with that? Why don't we go with that? Okay, so uh, there's some good and some bad news as always. Australia has been named the seventh healthiest country in the world. That's not bad. We've done well. That's based on the Bloomberg Index, which gives us a score. And uh, we are, as I said, seventh. Um, on the list and one of the only English-speaking countries in the top ten. Is that right? Isn't that cool? Yeah. So uh, we gain our points based on a few different things. Basically, we're really good at... Uh, well, we're one of the leading countries in tobacco, tobacco control. Ah, of course. So, and we're really good at promoting that. Doesn't mean we're mm. excellent at that because there's still a 15% of our population smokes, so we mm. always can do better. But... Um, that's a, that's one of our top scoring items. The other thing is that we have one of the best health systems in the world, apparently. Yay! With, uh, Medicare, you know, there's lots of um, people who will yeah, can for different that. reasons, <laughs> but, um, you know, everyone ha- does have um, um, access and availability to the public system and hospitals and emergency care, so that's pretty cool. Um, we also score very highly on low infant mortality. Mm. High life expectancy. Do you know how long you are expected to live? Please tell me. Training wheels, 84.6 years. That'll so do. Make the most of the point six. Can you clarify something for us on oh. that? Oh. <laughs> 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 okay. My understanding is that number. Yes. Um, so 84, did you say? Yes. Um, that, point six. Point six. <laughs> yep, that yes. gets you to July. Yeah. <laughs> um, if that re- represents the number if you're born today. Oh. Is that right? <laughs> I think no, you know, at, at the moment, go with as opposed yes. to like if you were born in 1970. Oh yes, it the, does. Yes, the exactly. Expected life range. You, you don't suddenly become now it's 84. No, but no, if no you're, so my that's baby, right. who's in the foyer at the moment, yeah, will live to 84.6. 84. Yes, oh, that's pretty yes. good. Yes, and males, it's 80. Mm, sorry about that. So um, yeah, <laughs> and um, and so and we're also um, very good with our environmental. Factors that impact on health. So, so just that Bloomberg index is based on life expectancy, infant health, risk of disease and injury. So that's how they score it all. And environmentally, uh, we have you know good clean water, fresh air, hmm. and good sanitation. So all that's of those so things. I thought the air in Melbourne was not so good with things like thunderstorm asthma and allergies and all that sort of stuff. Oh. I thought it was not great. Well, apparently, if you go to China, yeah, a bit it's worse. Harder to breathe. So mm. uh, yeah, okay. On, on a worldwide scale. I think our is not too bad. Okay. Um, and then, but as I said, we can do better. We actually dropped two positions since 2017. So, um, and that's because of our poor record with obesity and alcohol and cardiovascular risk factors. That's interesting like you mentioned the alcohol. I saw something in the news this week that 
alcohol consumption is increasing among working parents, if I remember correctly. Right. And decreasing amongst the younger age yeah. group. Is that right? Yeah. That's so interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So anyway, so we need to do better there. Um, also, our track record in motor vehicle injuries isn't great. Self-harm and death by family violence, especially in women under the age of 44. Uh. So there are some areas there that trickier kind of things to address, I guess. Mm. And we've got low infant mortality. Mm. And I think that contributes also to longevity stats, doesn't it? Yeah. Makes yeah, sense. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, who got number one? Number one was Spain. Spain. Then, really? then Italy, which is my cultural... Is this all the Mediterranean diet? Yeah, they say so, but I, I mean... I definitely you... wouldn't have guessed that. Yes. I would have thought Scandinavia somewhere. No, there. they're around 15... Finland's really? 14. Oh, cause maybe because of the sun. I don't know. It didn't actually elaborate the article. France, 12, and, of course, United States? hundred? Thirty-five. Thirty-five. Thirty-five, yeah. So, yeah, look, they do say the Mediterranean diet, you know, all that wholesome food, legumes, etc. But if you eat too much and become obese, then it kind of... Yeah. Yeah, because Spain has a big problem with obesity. But anyway, so we're doing okay. Seventh, did you say? We're seventh. I reckon that's all right. That's not bad. I'll take that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Better than the Olympics. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't... Watch the <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's that's good news. But as I said, um, we still need to do better with the cardiovascular risk factors. So, mm. um, you know, we still need to yeah. work harder. Yep. Mm. You're on uh, radiotherapy with Capri. <laughs> <laughs> remembered (laughs) training wheels and uh, panel beater coming up on the show later on we've got um, uh, we'll come back and we're going to talk about uh, a documentary with you Capri yes indeed yep and we're going to talk about patient confidentiality that's right and I'm going to finish off with a segment on the self-help industry Mm. yeah three triple (sighs) Capri you've been watching some documentaries or been no, I would have liked to have watched this very important documentary, but unfortunately I don't have Netflix, another reason to subscribe. But anyway, uh, Oscar Week and one of the um, winners was, as you say, a documentary and uh, the title uh, initially didn't grab my attention when I looked through the winners list, which I tend to do every year. It's a bit of a fascination. And um, so it's called Period End of Sentence and I just thought, oh, yeah. Uh, but it's a then, bit of grammar documentary. Yeah, then. I did, I just, it just didn't, you know, because it just didn't sort of appeal to me. Would but then I read so yeah. another another article, and the title was "Wow, I can't believe a documentary about menstruation has won an Oscar." And I thought, oh, okay. So obviously a play on words, period, as in. Uh, menstruation and in in the American parlance it's more about the full stop what we call the full stop anyway it's a really important documentary because it talks about menstrual equality and uh, it well it it, it represents that so directed by Raker I'm going to get this wrong and my apologies not that she'll be listening Zetabchi um, who, who t- her 25-minute documentary shines a spotlight on the impact that menstruation has on young women in certain communities uh, developing in the developing world and how it affects them emotionally, but more so how it in- hinders their ability to get an education. Um, and so basically it features a group of girls from California who started fundraising for what's called the PAD Project. And the aim of that project is to set up a machine which makes biodegradable pads from local materials in India and it produces pads at around five cents per unit, which is pretty cheap. Um, It 
The story is about, uh, it, it depicts a group of women and girls in Hapur in India who, and it shows the impact this machine has had on their lives. Um, and basically um, how this wonderful little innovation and incentive has helped to empower the, this community of women and reduce the shame around having periods and enabling them to participate in life, basically, not only cultural and um, community life, but letting these girls get to school and stay at school. Um, it, talks about, it, dem it talks about the alternatives that these women have had to um, adopt in order to address their menstrual flow, which rather than using sanitary items like tampons and pads, they've had to use newspapers, uh, um, rags, ashes even and leaves to absorb their flow which you know you know it sounds apart from sounding like you know a bit of a chore just the hygiene aspect of that and the risks to their health um but uh so it's a really important story and but what i uh, a wonderful documentary from what i hear um and this, it sounds like it, you know, it has a really important message, but it's really the backstory. Have, have either of you seen it? No, I've seen another one that sounds related, though. I think it was called Menstrual Man from memory, and it's about the guy that developed this machine. Yes, so that's one of the cute backstories. So this guy, and I'm really going to get this wrong, um, his name is Aranachalam Marunganantham. I hope I got that correct. So he's an Indian guy who invented the machine in 2006 after um, s discovering that his wife was out searching for items to to oh. address her menstrual flow, like finding old newspapers, rags, etc. And this is and particularly a problem for women in, in India who don't live in major cities. They yes. don't have access to the sort of commercial products that we have And here. also they're too expensive. Exactly. Because he was born from poverty and I think, you know, he's, he's obviously not from... His family's not from a wealthy background. And he basically thought, well, this is not on. And so he developed this machine that makes these pads from biodegradable you know, local products, huh. which is really cool. And um, and he's now managed to have these machines installed in 23 of the 26 states in India. Wow. And the intention, and he got, you know, in 2014, one of the most influential people in the world uh, on that list, and he's planning to install the machine in 106 other nations. What does install mean? What do you... I think he's planning on just making them and sending them to these... Are they like a vending machine? Uh, I haven't seen it. So no. they're they're really amazing. The uh, something that's really cool about them is they don't use any electricity, so they can be set up anywhere. Um, and of course, in remote parts of India and other low-income regions of the world, there's not reliable access to electricity. So um, it's important to have something that's sort of self-sufficient. So it's this kind of machine. It's extremely simple. The women that are trained to use it are also trained to maintain it and repair it, so they can become completely self-sufficient. Um, and it's a really simple. I mean, look, it looks. Simple, but I'm sure it was extremely complex the design process machine that makes that they, they can buy the materials or you know acquire the materials very cheaply and they can make their own pads using this machine um, yeah as I said using no electricity and then they can sell them to members of their community so it ends up being a business enterprise for the women themselves making the right. pads but then also as you mentioned Capri it's more hygienic and all those sorts of things too and mm. at the end of the documentary I saw they had engaged um, some women from Fiji and he was interested in having um, some opportunities for them to use the machine mm. too so as you said yeah looking to 
expanded everywhere. Yeah. So I mean, just empowering the women not only um, as far as their their you know menstrual issues, mm. but also just to make their own products mm. and and just the whole the whole sort of enterprise. And a lot of the women in the documentary I saw were people. They didn't have a lot of financial opportunities themselves. Mm. Often they'd been they'd come from they'd been divorced and weren't able to find jobs or some of them had disabilities and other things that meant they weren't able to mm. find reliable work and this is a way for them to mm. have a reliable income for themselves. Mm. So the, the benefits of it are really kind of mm. accumulative. And the director, um, she actually is born in California and very privileged and she kind of realised that, um, you know, what she took for granted and her privilege meant that... Um, her her um, monthly physiological functioning did not impede her life mm. at all. Well, not greatly. And she just realised that that wasn't the case for a lot of women around the world and how, how that that's that whole menstrual inequality um, she thought was worth um, uh, shining a light on. So... So, yeah, that, I think it's just a, a nice story. As I say, I'll try and watch it. I need to obviously mm. get Netflix. But Be careful, uh, though. You could get, you know, you get Netflix and then it's a rabbit hole. I know. <laughs> the other aspects of the story is just this idea of grassroots invention and innovation. I just love that to deal with, you know, s problems in your own mm -hmm. community. I just thought that's a nice part of the story as well. Um, and, yeah, as you mentioned, the empowerment of the women to sort of be self-sufficient and, and do that for themselves. I just love the whole thing. Yeah. It strikes me, listening to you talk us through that, that, um, that it is, in fact, newsworthy. Like, mm. at 2019... You know that that something like this is still um, needing the sort of attention that a documentary like this can can bring to it. And while I was listening, I was thinking, like, when was I in popular culture as a, a young boy? When was I first exposed to even anything that resembling conversation about it? It would have been puberty blues. Mm. Yes. Remember that? Yes. A book, the Kathy Lett book. Um, but but then, as you roll through your memory bank, there's not a lot, is there? No. No, and I think, um, yeah, documentaries like this obviously are necessary. Uh, I thought I might make a little link, though. Our menstrual inequality in Australia has also been addressed recently, um, whereby the tampon tax was lifted uh, in January the f on January the 1st. Um, and the inequality was obviously nothing to the level that we've just mm. been talking about, but was that up until uh, the, the tax was lifted, there was a GST of 10% on, on sanitary items, including the uh, menstrual cups and period underwear. And the inequality being that um, items like condoms and lubricants were considered to be health um, essential, essential items, whereas um, menstrual products were considered to be luxury items. So <laughs> after 20 years of lobbying, finally that uh, has been addressed. And so now women will be saving up to $500 a year. Holy moly. Not, uh, not having to pay the GST on That's sanitary. remarkable, isn't it? It is remarkable. It's come a bit late when for me, sadly. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, never mind. Better late than never. <laughs> it's a tax that never made sense. No, no exactly. Not Twenty second. years in the in the making, but there you go. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Training wheels. What's Hello. your eye? Well, I think this story has probably caught a lot of people's eyes, but perhaps they haven't thought about it in the way that I got thinking about it this week. Probably the biggest news item this week 
just in Australia and possibly a lot of the world was that George Pell has been found guilty of historical child sexual assault charges. Um, and people will be aware that this he was found guilty in December and there was a suppression order. The media weren't allowed to report about it until earlier this week. Um, and it sort of got me thinking a bit about confidentiality and the different industries in our society that have special rules regarding confidentiality and why and what the purpose of it is and why it's important and how it sort of differs a little bit between different industries. So I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. Obviously with the George Pell story, a big part of it there is the the religious institutions and their obligations so-called for confidentiality and, and I think a lot of people would argue that that sort of the secrecy that comes with the confessional is what has led to the covering up of a lot of child abuse over many many years that we've seen come out in the Royal Commission and other places since then and I, I was sort of interested to think about you know I'm a heathen myself <laughs> so <laughs> I thought so yeah it's that big H on your forehead <laughs> <laughs> I um I sort of was thinking what the purpose is of the the secrecy of the confessional and why that's important and and I suppose historically what its role was and how it's changed now and I guess historically I can see and, and now too I can see that it's important for people who are religious and believe in in God and that they need to seek forgiveness for their eternal soul. salvation yes. yes that it's important to have someone they can talk to to you know perhaps alleviate some guilt and get things off their chest and maybe the priest can offer them some counseling and and those sorts of things and and I can see that having the knowledge that what you talk about in the confessional doesn't leave the room, allows you to really speak freely with God via the priest about everything. You don't have to keep anything to yourself, right? I guess that's... I suppose that's the, mm. the purpose, mm. right? But I also sort of thought, why, though... What What's the purpose of making someone feel better about doing something wrong? As in, if you've committed a kind of minor sin... Hmm. Sure, get it off your chest, feel better about it. But if you've done something really bad and then talking to a priest about it, you don't have any guilt anymore, is that a good thing? Well, is it good to kind of... <laughs> don't you reckon it's sort of helpful to have a bit of guilt? Mm. You don't have to answer that question now. <laughs> it was just something I was thinking about it, it, yesterday. It, it sounds like um, the wrestle that you might be dealing with is between say something that you feel bad and you want forgiveness for like you know literally a sorry for treating mm. somebody poorly or, yeah. or something of that nature compared to doing something that is against the law mm. right and you know ostensibly we live in a uh, secular state mm. and there's separation of church and state in theory yes and, and you know the real foundational matter in rule of law is that the church is secondary, as, mm, as yeah. respected as it is, is secondary to the law. Mm. And then we deal with the, the issue around confidentiality and we'll, um, you know, whether it be in the church or in legal profession or in the medical profession. Mm. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's interesting. And I was looking at how other religions deal with it. And look, this is just based on a very quick Wikipedia, so I'm sure I'm missing a lot of <laughs> nuance here. But... In Islam, you it seemed from my reading yesterday, it seems that you the the process of seeking forgiveness is a personal 
endeavour. You seek forgiveness from the individual whom you may have wronged Mm. and then seeking forgiveness from God is a private Mm. conversation between you and God. It, It doesn't involve an imam or any other figures or, you know, individuals. And then in Judaism, similarly, you seek forgiveness from the individual whom you may have wronged and then if they refuse to forgive you, you seek increasingly public forgiveness. Mm. So if they don't forgive you, you ask some other people more publicly for forgiveness and then they don't, you know, more and more right. publicly you seek forgiveness. And, I mean, obviously bad things happen in all institutions and all religions and everywhere, non-religious and religious institutions. But I wondered if that kind of public seeking of forgiveness perhaps sort of lends itself to maybe less kind of... Yeah, I don't skeletons know. in the closet stuff. Maybe. I don't know. From a radiotherapy perspective, we might be dealing with issues of mental health here. Is that part of it? And and so the the concept of shame, you know, public shame is is a big one that, that can work for and against the solidarity of a community. So if you're um, somehow deviant, and I use that in the technical sense of the word deviant, just doing something that is not the social norm, um, then but but nevertheless not something that you should be ashamed about, Mm. you know, or sorry for or guilty for, Mm. um, then that obviously creates issues that eventually turn into things like mental health or isolation and loneliness and feeling disconnected Mm. from your world, isn't it? And so Mm. therefore we would say that that isn't healthy. For sure. And if if you have this obligation to seek public forgiveness, you're going to avoid that if you think that's going to make you feel shame. Hmm. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. And in Buddhism, there's a there's a process of seeking forgiveness too in, as part of... I mean, I, again, not going to be accurate on the technicalities here, but as part of the process of meditation, there's a, a seeking forgiveness for any wrongdoing before you kind of enter the next stage of meditation. So I thought it was interesting mm. that it's not, it's not just Christianity, not just Catholicism mm. that has this kind of process and the practices differ, obviously, between different religions. Um, And then I was thinking about other industries where there's confidentiality expected, and one is the legal profession. And I have absolutely no experience or expertise. My expertise of law goes about as far as I used to watch Law and Order SVU Mm, as a teenager, so I don't feel like particularly qualified to talk about Well, it's very topical with um, the lawyer, Lawyer you know, 3838. Yes. uh, That whole confidentiality lesson... Must have missed that. N- Nicola Gobbo came out. <laughs> Fascinating. It was revealed yes. yesterday. Fascinating. So I guess the idea there is that every person, whether they're guilty or innocent or whatever, has the right to a fair trial and and just representation. And that might mean telling things to your lawyer that they don't then tell other people. Mm. And my layperson's take on that is that that seems pretty vulnerable to exploitation, but I'm sure it's there for a reason. <laughs> <But> <laughs> lawyer friends of mine say it's so important you know, it's it's crucial, as it is in medicine as well. Mm. It really is one of the um, pillars of ensuring you're getting the accurate and important information so you can actually, you know, benefit the person sitting in front of you. So, um, yeah, that whole confidentiality thing is something you don't want to play with or erode because it's just you just can't do you can't um fulfill those roles well unless there's that trust and bond and Mm. understanding Mm. between the person in front of you and yourself and that whole relationship just gets eroded there's no way somebody can have fair justice no in the absence of yeah honest communication i suppose Mm. and then the other interesting industry is the media where you protect your sources in the interest of 
getting the truth and um, and I, that's something again that I sort of I don't know a lot about and I, th- I find it pretty fascinating when people are on the record off the record and mm. um, those sorts of things and then of course with the George Pell story this whole suppression order thing is obviously it could be a whole topic of conversation about whether the public deserved to know and obviously it was in the interest of some other proceedings that didn't end up eventuating but it was in the interest of protecting justice and not prejudicing future legal legal proceedings mm. um which i you know i sympathize with that that's fine um but yeah at the same time it's pretty it's a big story and mm. and i can see why the community wanted to know about it some of my reading uh it looked like from the lay perspective that they were protect it it served to protect pell but in fact it it mm. was serving to make sure that that other case which didn't end up going ahead got it got you know, due, yes. like justice would have been served. Yes. So it was actually part of that process. But yes. again, this is just through my yeah, limited yeah, likewise. reading. And yeah. then interestingly now, up to I saw in The Guardian that up to 50 journalists are potentially facing jail time for breaking breaching this suppression mm. order. Because remember the, the cover of the Herald Sun was very kind of unambiguously, <laughs> ambiguously talking about the, yeah. the George Bell case and mm. um, The Age had quite a detailed article about it as well where they sort of didn't name any names but it was pretty obvious what they were talking about and, uh, yeah, I just found that whole thing pretty interesting mm. as well. Mm. Um, but then that brings us to medicine mm. and patient confidentiality and the um, and I think where that kind of falls in is there's these four p- principles of, ethical, of, of healthcare ethics and they are beneficence doing good non-maleficence doing no harm autonomy and justice and i think that privacy fits most clearly into autonomy you can't be acting in your best interests freely in a situation where you feel like you can't speak openly and honestly with your doctor and particularly when you are if you in the situation where you might be concerned that your doctor or your decisions might be influenced by somebody else. If you, yeah, does that sound... Or at risk of someone else, uh, at risk of that person then being forced to divulge anything you've told them. So, yeah, not being worried that... I, I, I trust my doctor, but at some point someone else can, you know, get some information from them um, and... Uh, I'm not sure what else you've got to say about this uh, training wheels, but yeah, the, you know, the basically in, in medicine, the bottom line is that you know you don't divulge anything. That confidentiality um, is so important unless it's for the community greater good, um, and I guess that's kind of the bottom line, really. If you if you can make a case for um, this patient's com- the confidentiality with this patient is is not um, as important as something bigger that the community needs needs to needs to be addressed on a community level then then you really don't breach that that you'd be really um, and they're pretty pushed. specific situations where you worry that someone else might come to harm yeah. is that right Capri they're the mm. main sort of yeah so either um, you know you would only breach confidentiality if the patient if you thought your your the patient was at risk um, and they weren't able to make choice you know the right choice um, and you're trying to protect them or um, as a result of whatever they have disclosed someone else was at risk so they're they're pretty clear um, guidelines what yeah what would what's the scenario in both of those examples uh, okay so if you've got a, a teen who's suicidal 
um, and um, and not rational in there and have no insight and not making appropriate choices and you need to keep them safe. And you right. you you actually talk about that before you start um, having a conversation. You explain that to um, to the adolescent and you say, look, this is how it's going to work. Everything you say to me is, is confidential between you and myself. However, if at any point I feel that um, you're at any risk or anyone mm. else is at risk, um, then I will need to speak to someone about that. And you do that with their consent in some way. They're understanding that that's what's going to happen. What about when um, matters of criminality uh, are involved? For example, uh, illicit drugs... Uh, okay, so I looked this because I, I um, wasn't sure myself because just this week I read something, um, one of the medical indemnity provider newsletters that apparently our um, requirements uh, are changing a little bit. Um, but when it comes to the law, legally we're bound, we're legally bound like anyone else in the community as far as what we, um, when, if we are asked by the police to disclose any information, it's illegal to withhold information from police concerning any crime. Um, so we're bound by the same rules. However, um, medical practitioners and psychologists and nurses, um, if they still think it's not in the patient's best interest and you don't feel that anyone else, in, and, and again, the, this is just through my reading, um, uh, anyone else is in any immediate risk, then um, you still don't breach that confidentiality. So in the situation of illicit drugs, it's not illegal to take drugs or be under the influence unless other people are going to be come to harm. Mm. So if, if you are aware that a patient is using illicit drugs, that's fine unless they're operating on people or operating a forklift or, do, you know, driving a truck right. or doing something that, or, you know, driving under the influence, you're aware of that, mm -hmm. those sorts of things where other people could come to harm. That's my understanding. And the other example I read about is, let's say um, your patient has HIV and they don't want to disclose it to their partner. Right. Um, you have to, you can't C breach can't that confidentiality. Them. Is that right? Mm. And where are things at in that regard with domestic violence? Well, then I think the situation would be, well, there are other people at risk. I guess it depends. It'd be just so individual. Absolutely. Each case would be in cases to of, take on, it, on its own merits. When children think. are at risk, there's a mandatory requirement that, that medical professionals do have to report to the Department of yes. Human Services or whatever yes. it's called. So, so those mandatory reporting laws have, have changed. There's a bill, actually, an amendment to the bill... Um, and we don't know when that's going to come through. But basically, the threshold to report other doctors has been um, heightened. So, um, so this is something that plagues a lot of... I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Capri, but I think junior doctors particularly are worried about this because if they go to their GP saying, I'm depressed or I'm anxious or whatever, there's this obligation for doctors to report when their colleagues are mentally unwell yes. and there's a concern that it stops doctors from getting the help they need because it might affect their future mm. employment yes. um, and and perhaps you know having depression or anxiety you know certain certain conditions may not actually impact patient care yes. certain certain conditions certainly might but others 
may not. So, so that's what uh, the, the the change is that do doctors will only be required to report that kind of conduct if the public is being placed at substantial risk of harm. So before it would, mm. it was yeah the threshold was a bit lower, but now there are stricter obligations to report sexual misconduct though by mm. doctors. So um, and so now we have to report not only current issues but past if we're aware of any past and any future risk so that's changed so one the threshold has been heightened to report um you know our peers if we don't think there's a substantial risk to the public but then with sexual misconduct it's going the other way um except for western australia they're not bound by these rules and i think um uh doodle has spoken about this before how some um people within his his um uh, profession go to Western Australia to um, see doctors because they know that they won't be um, oh. they won't be reported. But obviously now in Victoria, the the threshold being a bit higher, perhaps mm. we'll stay here. Mm. Mm. And just one last scenario that I think will be of interest to people is around age. So, say in GP practice, um, how young can somebody be and book their own appointment, and the GP not need to discuss with a parent? So with my health record, it's changed a little yeah. bit. So it's now 14. Uh, it used to be uh, 16 and now it's 14 because um, because of that whole my health record thing where parents would be able to access their teenagers' records. Um, again, it's that confidentiality thing that we, they felt that this would um, mean that some teenagers might want not tell their doctor about their, you know, sexual... Um, issues or drug taking or whatever alcohol use etc so now it's been reduced to 14 so um, which I think is great yeah mm. that wasn't the last scenario I was thinking of there's one more what about when um, the person the patient um, in the view of the medical practitioner isn't of sound mind you know, maybe it's um, when they're... Um, maybe they've had a head injury or maybe there's some kind of onset of dementia or or something of that nature. Um, obviously, there's a, there's a grey area in there, right? I mean, if somebody is completely suffering dementia, then it's, it's going to be plain to see and yeah, probably not I've to had answer a few, for there. Yeah, a few scenarios where, where um, uh, children of or, or um, partners of uh, a... a person who they feel has having cognitive dysfunction or decline, bring them in for assessment um, for various reasons, for various motiva various motivations. And basically you get other opinions. Right. You, you know, you refer them to a geriatrician or a psychiatrist. You, you're not basing it on one, um, one person's opinion on that if it's a bit grey. Yeah. 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 Before we move on, I just want to quickly, to wrap up the segment, just mention that we've talked about some pretty heavy topics here. So if anybody has felt any distress listening to what we've been talking about, you can ring Lifeline, as always, on 13 11 14. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back to uh, Radiotherapy on RRR with Training Wheels Capri and myself, Panel Beater. Today is kicking off a series that will be running through the rest of the year um, where one segment will be devoted to um, the self-help industry. Um, this came up, we had a, a number of uh, episodes last uh, last year where we had people coming in and talking about, you know, what, 
we would loosely call self-help books. You know, they might be on happiness, they might be on parenting, they might be on all, all sorts of things, dealing with um, depression and anxiety and so on. Um, and the feedback on those episodes was really positive. And so there's clearly a lot of um, interest and in, it'd be a rare person, I think, who hasn't at least... Oh walked by the self-help section of, of a bookstore <laughs> We've all been there. And, We've all and, been and, and, and taken a look at self-help. And being a medical show, we're obviously um, science-based. <laughs> Try to be. <laughs> Try to be. Um, and, um, you know, if people are turning up to their GP, Capri... Um, They'll be asking all sorts of questions about what they can do about all sorts of things in their lives, right? Mm. Um, and yet we have this parallel industry where people are seeking out um, help um, from books and motivational speakers and so on. Just to give you a sense of scale, um, the, the figure that I found um, in prep for today was the industry is north of $11 billion. Wow. Self-help. And to accentuate that figure, that just includes the products of self-help, right? So that doesn't include um, all the stuff that drive people to go and do, um, you know, take on medica meditation apps or retreats or um, any of those allied allied medical um, professions. Um, that's just books and events. Wow. Self-help, mm. $11 billion. Um so as a sector of the publishing industry, it's massive. Mm. And we're also seeing, of course, um, uh, YouTube. So YouTube has hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands, what am I saying? Thousands mm. and millions, thousands, maybe. millions, millions yeah. um, of, of people who, whose channel is effectively self-help. Mm. You know, things around productivity, or mm. dealing with stress um, and, and these sorts of things. So there's that aspect of it in terms of like a, uh, an ecosystem for self-help. Um, and then if you layer that with the other statistics we're all too familiar with, um, where about 2 million Australians um, are in some sort of treatment for anxiety and about 1 million um, in treatment for some sort of depression, either short-term or long-term. Um, at, at any one time. Um, that is massive. Mm. And then if we go further and understand what that can mean for, say, somebody turning up to your clinic and um, talking about their depression or anxiety and then leaving the clinic and going to a bookstore to pick up a book, they're doing this effectively shopping around for an answer that helps them. And um, as somebody has pointed out, um, unhappy people are very easy to control. And so, because they're looking for solutions, they're looking for um, uh, some kind of uh, response and recognition of their Control own circumstances. Control or influence? What? Yeah, but yes, yeah, synonymous with influence perhaps mm. is a better word. But I, I yeah, yeah. Um, and so, um, if so, the way that the self-help industry promotes itself or books that. It's very um, solution-orientated. The mm. sales pitch is here's a solution, here are the six steps or 12 weeks to um, yes. X, Y, Z. Top you know? 10 ways Top to, 10 ways, yeah. you know. Mm. Um, and they're tapping into that um, that view that people have of their own situation and themselves. Um, so there's a real, you know, in a sense, a, a, a commodification of happiness. Mm. So through um, the rest of... Um, 
this year in Doolittle Show. Doolittle's still gallivanting around. Yeah. Well, that, uh, in, in... Uh, so last year. I... <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. So, in fact, his book was a big part of the trigger for this series because he's, he's got a whole chapter in his book, Mental, available at all good bookstores. <laughs> Are you on the payroll? <laughs> no, no, I want to be. Um, uh, and a whole chapter on self-help mm. in there, especially dealing with mental health. Um, so we'll be taking a look at that through the sem- um, through. The, I was going to say the semester. You can tell where my head's mm-hmm. at. Start teaching tomorrow. Um, uh, through the the rest of the year on the show. So sounds good. Yeah, it'll be good. I'll just give you a quick um, background though, like a, a bit of a historical run through for the last two minutes of the of the show. Um, Apparently, I mean, it's going to depend a little on what we define as self-help. But by one definition, there was an ancient Egyptian genre of um, instructional literature (laughs) called sabbat, which means teaching. And um, hieroglyphics and all of that business um, were dedicated to um, helping people how to live a life, which then takes me into the Greek philosophers, which who were all about how to live a good life, right? The the Aristotelian um, matters, and, and Aristotle himself believed that reading had healing capabilities. The act of reading had um, healing capabilities. Um, so while self help, so some would argue that while self help book buyers may not be cured by whatever ails them, feeling better just by going and buying a book and reading through something that you connect with might be helpful. Um, There was um, material through the Middle Ages and the the 1600s and 1700s um, where there was books that have covered topics like lonesome and filthy things, blowing the nose, hair cut round like a bowl dish and beards of a frightful length. (laughs) <laughs> um, so there, there's a, you know, other words, there's a, there's a long uh, history and tradition of publishing in the self-help realm, which we'll delve into for, um, for the rest of the year. Well, can't wait. Looking Sounds forward good. to it. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.